Well, welcome to the first episode of Primary Care Update. I'm Dr. Mark A. Bell. I'm a family physician, a professor at the University of Georgia, and editor-in-chief of Essential Evidence Plus, which is an evidence-based online primary care reference. If you like what you hear on the pod, even if you don't, check out www.essentialevidenceplus.com. Primary Care Update is a summary of recent research that we think is relevant and important for primary care clinicians to know about. We get commentary from our panel of primary care physicians. I need to say the opinions expressed are those of the commentators, and this podcast does not represent medical advice or the endorsement of any product. If you're a primary care physician, be skeptical and read the article yourself to form your own conclusions. If you're a patient listening in, please talk to your primary care doctor about anything you hear here. I'm joined today by my good friends, Dr. John Hickner, family physician and editor of the Journal of Family Practice, and Dr. Henry Berry, professor of family medicine at Michigan State University. Guys, welcome to the pod. Glad John. to be here. Henry, I'm, what's up? What's I, going on in East Lansing? I'm glad to be here as well. I've been here uh, close to 30 years, and I'm looking forward to potentially retiring this year. Uh-oh. Excellent. <laughs> yeah. Excellent. Lots, hopefully a little more golf in your future. Golfing and biking. Excellent. Um, yeah, I know you did that big bike ride th to raise money uh, at MSU. That's great. Yeah, we've raised close to a million dollars so far. Fantastic. Hey, um, let's go ahead and talk a little bit about the first study, which was published in JAMA in 2018, Volume 320, Issue 1. It's by Lipska. It's called Association of Initiation of Basal Insulin Analogs versus Neutral Protamine Hagedorn Insulin, otherwise known as NPH insulin, with hypoglycemia-related emergency department visits, hospital admissions, and glycemic control in patients with type 2 diabetes. So the authors asked the question, do long-acting insulin analogs like Glargine, Lantus, or Detamir, which is Levamir, reduce the risk of clinically significant hypoglycemia compared with good old-fashioned NPH insulin? And we all know the price of insulin has gone crazy and has gotten a lot higher in recent years. Uh, one study showed that one in four adults with diabetes either stop or cut back significantly on their insulin because they can't afford it. These researchers analyzed Kaiser Permanente data from 2006 to 2015 that links prescribing information with lab results and complications and outcomes like did they have to go to the ED and were they hospitalized? There were over 25,000 adults with type 2 diabetes in the study. They were all just getting started on some kind of basal insulin therapy. They did their best. Now, this wasn't a randomized trial, but they did their best to control for lots of things that are potential confounders like demographics and year, especially their physician, uh, comorbidities, depression, glycemic control, blah, 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 lots and lots of com comorbidities and co covariates. They found, very interestingly, and I think importantly, the risk of a severe hypoglycemic episode resulting in a visit to the ED or a hospital admission was actually lower in patients who initiated NPH insulin at baseline compared with those initiating an insulin analog. It was about just under nine to almost 12 events per thousand person year. So these weren't common events, but they were about 25% less common in those on the NPH compared with the much more expensive analogs. Now, this difference was not statistically significant, but it potentially is clinically important and, and certainly uh, does not show any advantage or benefit to using these analogs. We usually don't get too excited about disease-oriented outcomes and biomarkers on the pod, but they did find a slightly greater decrease in A1C with NPH by about 0.2% in the A1C. 
So I think the bottom line is that compared with long-acting insulin analogs, this study tells us that NPH appears to be as safe, if not safer. It's equally well tolerated. It's equally or more effective and at a much lower price. We always think about drugs in terms of safety, tolerability, efficacy, and price. We use STEP as the mnemonic. mnemonic. And uh, I think it's a good way uh, to think about this as well. And, And basically on each of these, NPH does as well or better. John, what do you think about this? This was really surprising to me because I have read a number of the original studies of, of Glargine and Detmer in which they actually did randomized trials and had a slightly lower incidence of hypoglycemia. So that's how they've been marketing these medications. So I was uh, surprised and delighted to find out that in real world, pra- real world practice that the results are certainly the equivalent Uh, if not better with NPH. And because of the high expense of these medications, I think this is really good news for us. And I now feel more confident uh, going back to good old NPH, which is much less expensive. So so very good news, in my opinion. Is this going to change your practice, Henry? I I don't know. I don't use much insulin to begin with. Um, I think I like the results of this paper, but it is a database study, and I have to be cautious that it's not a randomized trial, and it is, and it does fly in the face of the clinical trial data that's out there. Um, to me, the reason I'm not sure it changes my practice is that uh, I don't see any indication that patients overall are better off on the effectiveness side, right? So we need to know if our patients, in fact, have longer lifespan, fewer complications, things of that nature. Yes, the the fewer harms is an important piece, but I need to look at that in balance with the, the, with the benefits. And so I'm not sure that this is a practice changer yet. Yeah, I think I think that's a great point. And certainly, uh, we'd love to see a randomized trial. I somehow don't think the manufacturer of Levomir is going to be sponsoring a direct comparison with NPH, especially after they read this study. So we may be waiting a while for that. Uh, sometimes we see these studies uh, done in Europe and, and elsewhere uh, when they aren't done here. Uh, so I think that's something we, we definitely need to be looking for. Certainly, at least it reassures me that if I have a patient who's taking NPH, then I'm... I, 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 I feel reassured. And where I practice, which is a safety net clinic, we only prescribe NPH. And I think I can feel really good. And I'm going to share this with our pharmacists who do a lot of the insulin management so that they can also feel like they're not shortchanging their patients. Henry, you've got a quiz for us. Yes, we'll have a pop quiz. We're going to try to do this in each episode. You get the question now, and then we will discuss the answer at the end of the episode. So here's the question. Which of the following tests is best performed with the patient fasting? A, a lipid profile, B, a hemoglobin A1C, C, TSH. Stay tuned. John, are you going to talk to us a little bit about our second study? Yes, indeed. But uh, regarding that pop quiz, knowing Henry, I'll bet it's a trick question of some sort. (laughs) Going on to study number two, this is a very interesting study. Uh, These are investigators from Johns Hopkins who address this question. Does negative language in chart notes affect residents' and medical students' attitudes towards patients, and does it influence residents' treatment decisions? So this was a randomized trial using clinical vignettes, 233 medical students, and 180 emergency or general internal medicine residents 
were randomly assigned to read one of two chart notes with medically identical information about a hypothetical patient with sickle cell disease. One note used neutral language. For example, he has about eight to 10 on the pain crisis this past year for which he typically requires opioid pain medication in the ED. And the other vignette used stigmatizing language. For example, he is narcotic dependent and in our ED frequently. So subtle differences in the language, but you you get the idea. And there were several other parts of the note that were like this. After reading the note, the participants completed the positive attitudes towards sickle cell patient scale, which has a range of 7 to 35. And I think that's important to know that it's uh, 7 to 35. And then the residents could select from one of four treatment options. So here are the results. The attitudes were significantly worse on average for participants presented the stigmatizing language with an average score of 25 for the stigmatizing vignette and 20 for the the neutral language. So that's a difference of five points, which is a pretty big difference on this 35-point scale. Uh, Interestingly, the attitudes were progressively more negative with more years of training. That is, we train people into this. Now, regarding treatment, the residents were more likely to select less aggressive treatment for pain if they had been exposed to the stigmatizing language. And the participants reading the stigmatizing note were also more likely to identify the physician who wrote the note as having a more negative attitude toward the patient. And keep in mind, this is a sickle cell patient who is obviously uh, African-American. Well, this is only one of many studies that show that the words we use matter. I think this study reminds us that it's not only the words we speak, but it's also the words we enter into the patient's chart. If you think of how, about how antagonistic our common medical language jargon can be, it's quite interesting. We say patients complain, they admit or deny, they refuse, they're non-compliant. Uh, so the words we use can transmit implicit bias and can even affect treatment decisions, at least in this study. So I think it's really important that we be as objective as possible with the language we use in our chart notes. And when we're teaching students and residents, we need to call them out when they use stigmatizing language. Uh, What's your experience, Mark and Henry? Mark? You know, uh, this was fantastic. I hadn't seen this study before, and uh, it was really eye-opening and something certainly that anybody who works with students or residents uh, should be thinking about and should be reflecting on their own practice, too. You know, like you said, many of these words are things we all use every day. Uh, someone denied something as if they're you know, trying to hold out on us. You know, uh, it's very interesting. I couldn't help also think about the Seinfeld episode where Elaine goes to see the doctor and the doctor leaves the room. And of course, Elaine grabs the chart and looks at it. And in the note, it said she's a difficult patient, which probably is true. And then every she got referred around to different doctors and every doctor got the difficult patient thing. And they all treated her terribly. And so it just reminds me of that. So a little Seinfeld teaching episode episode. Um, sure. Teaching if you want to see some other terrible examples, just to watch the, the folks in Mad Men go to the doctor. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I remember that. Yeah, this was to me quite humbling because we, we already know that many of our patients 
are already stigmatized because they come from a lower socioeconomic background. They are visibly different from the uh, treating physician. They come with difficult problems. And now we add this additional um, layer of how we communicate the information. And I often just wonder how somebody like Sir William Osler might have uh, survived in, a, in an era like this, who's clearly a caring individual and, you know, started with that whole premise of tell me about the person who suffers, not about the disease. And so, you know, there's some humbling messages that we need to be thinking about that we, we really do need to care for individuals. And in, in, a, in order for that to take place, we also have to start off with the appropriate forms of communication. Yeah, great point, Henry. Um, so I think we've all had a chance to, you know, hopefully we'll have a chance to reflect a little more on this and think about this the next time you're writing your note or dictating your note in the chart. What kind of language are you using? And could we maybe do a better job with that? Um, Henry, you have a study to talk about, a little more clinically oriented study about HPV testing. Yes. this So this is by Schiffman et al. in the Journal of the National Cancer Institute from just a few weeks ago. The title of the paper is Relative Performance of HPV and Cytology Components of Co-Testing in Cervical Cancer Screening. So the big question is, what are the contributions of cytology and HPV components of co-testing in the detection of cervical cancer and pre-cancer? So this was a big database study of over 1 million adult women um, seeking care at Kaiser Permanente of Northern California. Each of the women had a pap smear every three years. At the end of 10 years of this study, they looked to see what happened so the first thing they identified, a little over 600 women who had cervical cancer and just about 5,300-ish women who had what they called pre-cancer. These were women with um, CIN3 or adenocarcinoma in situ. When they combed the data, what they found was that about three-quarters had a positive HPV test, and only about 60% had an abnormal cytology. These are of the women who had cancer. Ironically, 6% of the women with cancer had negative HPV and um, negative um, cytology. So there was a, a significant misrate in all of this. When they go and, and mine the data a little bit further, the good news is that about two-thirds of the cervical cancers and precancers were found on the very first set of testing. The bad news is that almost one in five women with cancer um, that all of the testing missed them altogether. When you look at it all told, it, adding cytology to just HPV testing would identify roughly 6% more cancers and roughly 4% more pre-cancers. So, Mark, you were on the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force, and so you've played with these kinds of numbers and lived this for a long time. So, are these numbers enough for us to drop doing cytology from our current recommendations? Well, the current, the most recent recommendations just came out in their official form, yes, I think yesterday or the day before in JAMA. And so we're recording this on a Thursday. I think they must have hit on Wednesday. So uh, the, the recommendation, the draft recommendation said, do cytology every three years or HPV only every five years. The final recommendation added the combination of cytology and HPV 
as a sort of an alternative strategy. But the, the primary strategies they recommend are either HPV every five years or cytology every three. And so I think uh, I, I wasn't privy to those discussions. I'm no longer on the task force, but um, I, it was always a, it's a balance of benefits and harms. And you do detect a few more uh, cancers, which is a good thing, very good thing. But you also have far more biopsies and false positives and false alarms if you do the co-testing, if you do both at the same time. So it's it's both of them at the same time is kind of a belt and suspenders approach. It really, if a patient is maybe at higher risk or perhaps a patient who is has a higher level of worry, then maybe that's a, an option for them. I think for most women, either cytology every three years or HPV every five makes the most sense. So this would open and, up the potential then if we're doing HPV testing only to actually use urine samples rather than invasive uh, testing, which would actually open the door for many more women to be screened, including disadvantaged patients who don't necessarily have access to a healthcare provider. Yeah, and they're also self-sampling uh, HPV uh, using a cervical uh, device. So there, there are lots of, uh, and that's being studied more in uh, developing countries because it can be done by an untrained uh, uh, healthcare personnel or minimally trained healthcare personnel and and or patients. Uh, I'll say, also, I'll add, uh, I was talking to some physicians in Dublin, Ireland uh, earlier this week. I'm going to be doing uh, some research and teaching over there in the spring. And they said that cervical cancer screening, there's been a huge blow up. If you go to the Irish newspapers, apparently it was farmed out to a U.S firm. And as with any test, they missed some cancers. And so these women who had cancer diagnosed, the company went back and said, oh yeah, I guess we could have seen a cancer two years ago before it became invasive and metastatic. And this has created a huge blow up in this. It's unclear whether the company was worse than it should have been, or whether these are just the false negatives that we you know, expect with any screening, but it certainly has become a huge issue if you go to Ireland and, and you know, talk to folks. I think this is quite confusing to patients. I recall years ago when the recommendation came to cut back on pap smears from every one year to every three years that Henry Yu and uh, Dr. Mindy Smith actually did a focus group and indeed found that women were having a hard time understanding and believing this. So I have found that these changes in pap smear testing do need to involve some good communication with patients. Absolutely. The yeah, study I think the message is go ahead I'm sorry Henry. so the the study that we did uncovered all kinds of issues around trust whether or not the physicians are actually working in the best interests of the of the patients the women or their insurance companies and the 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 tying of pap smears and cervical cancer screening to uh, contraception became that yearly ritual. It was so well ingrained the the, the one of the big barriers that we identified was well it's working, isn't it? Why, why would you want to ruin a good thing? Yeah. It, it, and it raises other questions as we lengthen that interval. What about the bimanual exam? The American College of Physicians now says you do not have to do a bimanual exam on women annually. The ACOG even says it should be a shared decision that women who feel more comfortable having that uh, exam each year should continue to do it, but that it's 
becoming, I guess I'd say kind of a practice option rather than something that's always recommended. So there's all this. And then if women are only coming in every three years or they're not getting a blood pressure check. So it's, there's a, a, maybe some unintended consequences of this. And I think we have to think about individuals and some of these patients still should see us every year, uh, but we shouldn't necessarily be spending the time on that annual PAP. So I'm going to move on to what I call preventing bad stuff. And this is a section that uh, focuses on clinical preventive services, cancer screening, disease prevention, primary prevention. Uh, as uh, I think John mentioned, I spent four years on the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force from 2012 to 15, and I still do some consulting with that group. And so I'd like to share you a little bit about what I learned. I learned an awful lot. I thought I went into being on the task force thinking I knew a lot about screening, turns out I had a lot to learn. And so hopefully we can share some of that with our listeners um, every episode. This week, it's something uh, completely non-controversial. I wanted to start off with something really easy. So we're going to start off by talking about PSA to screen for prostate cancer. Yeah, no controversy there at all. Ping pong. Ping well. pong. <laughs> <laughs> and if we if we go back to 2012, six years ago, the USPSDF gave it a D recommendation, which is don't. There had been an I recommendation for insufficient evidence before that, but now it's a D, it became a D. That was controversial. Uh, the American Urology Association previously said, from 40 until you are dead, do it every year. The new guideline from the AUA actually says 55 to 69 years do share decision-making and do not screen before 55 or after 69. The American Cancer Society says do share decision-making between 55 and 69 years. So the USPSDF just updated this guideline. It was published in JAMA, Volume 319, Issue 18. It now also says, in a bit of a flip-flop, uh, to do counseling and share decision-making from 55 to 69, and it's a C recommendation. So what does C mean? Uh, a C recommendation means there's moderate evidence of a small net benefit. So B means there's moderate evidence of a moderate benefit, and A means there's high certainty of a substantial benefit. So Cs are in that range where insurance won't necessarily pay for it, although they typically will pay for PSA. And A's and B's have to be paid for by insurance. And the C recommendations are ones where we usually say it's, it's an individualized decision. And in part, that's because sometimes you have higher risk individuals and you have lower risk. Somebody with a family history, somebody who's African-American would be at higher risk, maybe more likely to choose screening. Whereas somebody who's at lower risk or has many comorbidities or competing uh, demands for their attention and, and sort of healthcare bandwidth may, may choose not to. So why the changes? Uh, basically, there were three things or two things, I think. Mainly, one was there was a longer follow-up from the large European trial, and it showed one fewer death due to prostate cancer for every, it was about 800 men screened for 10 years. So that benefit seemed to be persisting. Now, the U.S. trial, I should note, did not find any mortality benefit, but the U.S. trial had a problem in that about half of the men or more than half in the control group still got a PSA. Um, but if you looked at it, there was actually somewhat higher mortality in the screened group. So the U.S. and the Europeans got different uh, outcomes. The Europeans generally considered to be a somewhat uh, less uh, flawed, uh, stronger trial. 
The other big thing we found is that there is increasing use of watchful waiting. And to a large extent, that can mitigate some of the potential harms. We all know what those harms are of prostate cancer treatment, impotence, incontinence, cardiovascular complications of surgery. Um, you know, for every thousand men who are screened, you get about 100 to 120 false positives, about 110 additional prostate cancer diagnoses, about 30 men with ED, uh, nearly 20 with incontinence, and one additional man dying prematurely of treatment-related complications. So it's really a, a mixed bag. You have a few men who significantly benefit. Um, treatment does reduce the likelihood that it goes on to metastatic disease as well as mortality. Uh, but you know, it's hardly a slam dunk. The Canadian task force continues to, um, recommend against screening. And interestingly, the AFP, the American Academy of Family Physicians recommends against still gives it a D recommendation. So, you know, we went, we have some increasing harmony in that the ACP and the AUA and the USPSDF all have essentially the same recommendation, but we have disharmony in that the Canadians and the AFP and actually most other countries say, don't do this. What do you guys think? John? Yes, I, I think this makes sense. I think the real reason that I see is the watchful waiting or perhaps active surveillance might be a better word because these men are just not waiting out uh, doing nothing. They're getting PSAs every three months. They're getting monitored pretty carefully. Now uh, prostate MRI has come into the picture. So I think we can prevent a lot of the morbidity and perhaps even some mortality by this act of surveillance. So I think these new recommendations are coming close to being harmonized and at least with the current state of knowledge, make sense. I think in the future, we'll probably have better tests for detection of prostate cancer, but this is where it is now. Henry, what do you think? So I agree with John that there may be some things coming down the line, such as genomic testing that might help to identify those men who are likely to develop the invasive forms of prostate cancer from those who don't. I like the idea of shared decision-making, even at times when it seems like the answer is a slam dunk. I think there are values that patients come in with, especially those with multiple comorbidities for whom uh, cancer is maybe less of a concern, and they should be able to engage in those kinds of decisions. And then I'm also reminded, by the way, of some continued discordance. Uh, one of our local urologists continues to send people back after they do their, uh, you send somebody because they've got um, uh, hematuria and they send a note back to you saying, oh, and by the way, you should see your primary care physician for an annual digital rectal exam and PSA. I had a conversation with the urologist and asked, well, why do you do that? The Even the American Urologic Association recommends shared decision-making. And he referred me to a national cancer care network guideline that recommends annual PSA and annual digital rectal examination. So when you go to their website, turns out that their guideline isn't available to the public. You have to pay, be a paying member in order to access that guideline. So whether he's misreporting or not, I don't know because I'm too cheap to go and buy their guideline. All of the you others. Know, I you know, Henry, I think you can get on the, you can actually get into the NCCN because they, they have pretty good treatment guidelines. They just don't know what they're talking about in terms of screening. <laughs> 
Yeah. So, John, so, you know, I think one of the, one last thing to kind of wrap this up is that we had an article recently, and I can't remember what the journal it was in, might have been JAMA, but it was a big British study. And the study essentially did a one-time PSA screening in a large cohort of English men. I think I want to say 25,000, don't quote me on it, but a large cohort and compared it to a group that wasn't invited to screening. And it was basically, they compared the group invited to PSA versus not. They followed him for 10 years, I think, and they saw no difference in any outcomes. The limitation, it was a one-time screening. And also uh, most of the men invited to come in for the test didn't avail themselves of it. So there were some limitations to that. Certainly didn't show any benefit though. So it's one other trial, just when I didn't think there'd be any more, there was this one other trial lurking out there. So John, you're going to tell us next about a study uh, about incidental findings uh, on chest CT and MRI of the spine and brain. Yes, this study was by O'Sullivan and colleagues published in GBMJ in 2018 called Prevalence and Outcomes of Incidental Imaging Findings, an Umbrella Review. Well, umbrella, they mean it's really big. They wanted to answer this question. What is the likelihood of incidental findings on imaging tests? And what proportion of these so-called incidental omas are malignant tumors? Now, of course, there have been many studies of incidental omas, but I would say this, uh, I call it a mega meta-analysis, is by far the most comprehensive to date. The authors searched two databases and reference lists, and they found 20 systematic reviews that included 240 primary studies and over a half a million patients. These were studies that gave prevalence rates of incidental abnormalities in asymptomatic patients or patients with no apparent symptoms related to the incidentaloma. Then they did nine separate analyses. Three addressed incidentalomas of MRI scans of the spine, heart, and brain, respectively, and four addressed incidentalomas in computerized tomography, three for the chest, one for CT colonoscopy, and then they even had two for positron emission tomography, or PET scans. So here are some of the highlights of the, the many results in the studies. CT of the chest resulted in incidentalomas in 45% of patients, so almost half of patients. CT colonoscopy found 38% incidentalomas. Cardiac MRI also had a high rate with 34% of incidental findings. MRI of the spine, 22%. MRI of the brain, 22%. There were not high rates with PET scans, thank goodness. It was only about 2%. And interestingly, there were no studies of the prevalence of incidentalomas via radio, I'm sorry, ultrasound. So we don't have any data on ultrasounds. Well, that's part one. Now, part two was how many of these incidentalomas were discovered to be malignant when they knew that, when they worked them up later on. And for the breast, it was by far the highest. 42% of the incidental omas were found to be, quote, malignant. And we'll talk about that later. For renal, thyroid, and ovarian findings, the malignancy rate was approximately 25%. For extracolonic, prostatic, and colonic incidental omas, the malignancy rate was between 10 and 20%. With the adrenal gland, it was quite low with only about 1%. So that summarizes the results. Now, a few comments. Uh, the risk of imaging, of course, includes radiation exposure if it's a CT, 
and this uh, this identification of incidental illness, which leads to anxiety, further testing, overtreatment. And there really is very little research to guide us what to do when one of these pops up. In fact, there are only a few guidelines published to help guide clinicians, mainly for incidental illness of the adrenal and pituitary, and they're not necessarily evidence-based. So this study is helpful because it provides the best incidence data available for incidental illness for, for a wide range of imaging studies, and it's all in one spot summarized in this mega meta-analysis. I think the main limitation, of course, is that really there are no true patient-oriented outcome measures. So the malignancy rate, they say, is 42% for breast, but what does that mean? We have no idea if that's overdiagnosis, if these tumors would actually be harmful for patients or not. So we really don't have any outcomes data. They, they call malignancy a, quote, outcome in this particular meta-analysis, but we know that's not an outcome, that's a disease label. So uh, a useful study, because you can now go to this one study when you're curious about the rate of incidental omas, but we still don't have the data that we need to determine what to do about incidental omas based on good scientific evidence. What do you think? Yeah, you know, I, I was looking at this one and it's very, you know, sort of a seductive logic that you're catching cancers earlier. It's got to be good, right? And yet we really don't know if patients were any better off by having detected even these malignant incidentalomas. No. Now, yeah, you know, they, some of them might have become symptomatic the next month and they would have come in and had no real difference in outcome. Some might have been detected a few months later on routine mammography or colonoscopy or fit testing or whatever. Some might have been untreatable. And are you really better off knowing about an untreatable cancer a little earlier? Not really. And then I bet a bunch of them were overdiagnosed. So these were tumors that look cancery under the microscope and that, you know, or on the imaging, but actually grow slowly and never end up causing symptoms or harm. So, you know, right. I think we, it, it tells us that, yeah, we were finding them. They're out there. We kind of know anytime we do technology, you know, that's more advanced, we find more things. This is true with uh, PEs. I mean, when as our CT scanners get better and better and better, we see more and more of these little subsegmental PEs. What do we do with them? Probably treating those doesn't make any difference, but there's this impetus to treat and uh, and overtreat sometimes. So yeah, great study, really interesting stuff. And, and really, as you said, sort of the, uh, the, the systematic review of systematic reviews. It's great stuff. Yeah, so I, I actually took from this a very nerdy perspective, not that I disagree with any of the comments that you've made, is that when we teach clinical epidemiology and we talk about using the totality of evidence and to be able to use all of the information that's available that's relevant to a question, that a systematic review is a great place to go to because it, People have done a lot of work for you up front, and it's all synthesized in, in a way that you can use. And we've talked about uh, in our classes doing systematic reviews of treatment trials and for diagnostic studies and for issues of harm. And here we have a systematic review of systematic reviews, which basically goes to show that academic job security will drive all kinds of, um, of methodology here. <laughs> 
Good point. Good point, Henry. So I guess you have the answer to our quiz question to wrap us up today. Yes. So our quiz question was, which of the following tests should be ordered with the patient fasting? Uh, Lipid profile, hemoglobin A1C, or TSH? And John, you guessed it. This was a trick question. It's actually relatively old news that lipid levels are largely unaffected by the fasting state. There was a paper in JAMA in 2016 by Mora and a paper by, uh, I'm going to butcher the name, I'm sorry, Nordis de Gard in the European Heart Journal in 2016, which was a summary of a consensus statement. And all of these basically have demonstrated that there are trivial differences in cholesterol, total cholesterol, HDL, based on the fasting or non-fasting state. The only thing that's really affected are the triglycerides, and nobody really cares about the triglycerides. It has no effect on cardiovascular outcomes, except in those rare individuals who have problems with pancreatitis. So the bottom line is, if you're going to be doing lab testing on your patients, there is virtually no reason why you ever need to put them through the inconvenience of fasting. We can even screen for diabetes using the uh, non-fasting A1C. And what I tell my patients is that if it's been more than an hour since you've eaten, go on up to the lab and just lie to them. That's what I, I told a patient yesterday, the other day, Monday. She <laughs> said, so yeah, you don't have to be fasting. And then I thought it through and I thought, okay, she's going to walk into the Quest Labs and they're going to ask her, are you fasting? And she's going to say no. And they're going to send this poor woman away who has transportation problems. So I said, uh, okay, either be fasting or just lie about it. You know? This is something that just hasn't penetrated most physicians' practices, and certainly not the labs. They're still looking for everybody to be fasting, and um, so I think it's interesting. And um, we, you know, it, it's an interesting question about practice change as well. This is something that would make our lives simpler. And yet, for some reason, we're not adopting it. And our, our friend Ken Milne, an ER doc and family physician, uh, talks a lot about how it takes 18 years to get something into practice. That's how long it took thrombolytics to go from knowing they were effective to being routinely recommended. And Mark, uh, I, took, I took your advice, Mark. I had my annual physical last week and uh, I lied. I said I was fasting. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. I, I had my annual physical uh, yesterday or Tuesday, actually, and I will be lying shortly. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Well, this has been a lot of fun, guys. Um, listeners, uh, th- well, first of all, thank you, John, and thank you, Henry, for uh, for joining us today. You're welcome. Privilege. Yeah, great, great to be have, be a team again. Uh, for our, our listeners, the three of us first met <clears throat> when we were getting our master's in clinical research design and statistical analysis at the University of Michigan in a year that I won't mention, but it was uh, it began with a, a, a one nine nine, I think. <laughs> so <laughs> quite cool. quite a while ago, and uh, we enjoyed uh, enjoyed getting to know each other and have been teaching together ever since. So hopefully you enjoyed it. Uh, please send any feedback, ideas, comments to uh, ebell at uga.edu. Uh, John and Henry, thanks. Any last words before we wrap it up? Yes, I'm glad we finished in a timely fashion. I still have time to go out for a sale on my Beneteau 35. <laughs> nice. And I'm going to go. <laughs> and I'm going to go for a bike ride. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds great. Everybody, go do something healthy. Uh, we'll talk to you next week.